0: First Timothy chapter four. We return to Paul's I mean first Timothy chapter three, excuse me, I'm jumping the gun there. First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three, and we'll pick up where we left off last week in verse eight. And we are looking, we have moved from the qualifications of elders to now the qualifications of deacons. So take your Bible or your pew Bible. First Timothy chapter three, and our reading will begin in verse eight. Verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Let them serve as a deacons or as deacons being found blameless. Verse 11, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Our Father in God, we pray that you would bless the reading and the instruction of your word. Cause us to hear your word. We pray for your spirit to work grace in our hearts that we might receive it and believe it and to see its application and implications for us, Father cause us to walk in your ways and to believe your truth and be with me as I speak. I pray for the help of your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we have been moving through this letter of Paul uh, to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, we have noticed along the way that local churches... Local, visible churches in the New Testament, there's already, by this period in the apostolic age, there is an order that's being set forth. The, The Lord Jesus directs the life of the church by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, the scriptures. And as we've noticed along the way, there is a simple structure of leadership and government that is set in place by the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, it indicates that there is this established order in the churches. Titus 1, 5. For this reason, and here Paul's writing to Titus, he left him on the island of Crete as a apostolic representative. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order, set in order. And you remember, that's a word that's like... Um, it has to do with like a, a fractured or broken bone and setting it and setting it straight. And so he's to see things that are in the church that are not set in order. They're to be set in order. And he says the things that are lacking. And part of that is the appointment of elders, Titus 1, 5, the, elders, plural, that is a presbytery in that local church. And he says, and also in every city, as I have commanded you, the order of the local churches in the New Testament is not complex, but rather it is simple. There are two officers, if you remember, as we've looked at along the way in the New Testament, and these two offices are elder, and sometimes there are multiple terms used to describe that officer in the church, an elder, a bishop or overseer, or the other term is pastor or a shepherd, if you remember. And the other office is that of deacon. Now, for example, in Philippians chapter one, verse one, and notice that. Philippians 1 verse 1, the two offices are listed there as leadership. When Paul would write to Philippi, notice his language in in Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy bond servants of Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops, with the overseers and deacons. And in our present passage, in 1 Timothy 3, we find these two offices listed along with their qualifications. Yes, there's qualifications. We need to realize that proper church structure alone is not enough. God requires that the men who serve in the church are to be spiritually qualified. So there is to be an order, and part of that order in structure is also qualifications that are to be met. So we are not to just haphazardly fill the positions with men who do not meet the qualifications. In fact, that is one of the most destructive things that we could do or that could happen to a local church is for unqualified men to be serving in positions of leadership. Now, the men called by the church are to be tested. And that test will take time. It will evidence itself over over time. It doesn't happen overnight. And again, there is a danger of installing unqualified men. Biblical knowledge or desire to serve while good may themselves uh, are a good thing. That in itself falls short of what the qualifications require. As we see from our passage, this man must be well-rounded with biblical virtues and Christ-likeness. And as we move through our passage this morning, we will soon realize that the office of deacon is not an inferior office to that of the elder. In fact, many of the qualifications are the same, but they are different offices and offices. There's elder, pastor, overseer, and then there is deacon, the servant. And as we move through the list of qualifications, you will notice two items concerning this. If you remember in this broad section beginning in verse 1, that is the elders, if you remember, in broad strokes, the elders lead or govern and feed and teach. In other words, the elders lead and feed, they govern and teach. And then the deacons serve, the deacons serve, and so we'll see here in the qualifications for deacons, they're not given the same requirement of oversight, and they are not necessarily required to teach, though they can teach, it's not necessarily a requirement, they are to know what's to be taught, but they may not necessarily be gifted to speak publicly or to give instruction. So officially, the office of deacon is not a role, a member of governing our teaching. In fact, we do not have a deacon board. Our deacons here at Covenant do not meet collectively to to have meetings because they're not a governing body. Our deacons function as servants. They help the elders, so the elders can, uh, we will assign them things, or the congregation, congregationally, can assign them tasks. But it's typically the elders will assign them tasks so that the elders can focus on shepherding the flock by leading and feeding. Now let's look at these qualifications beginning in verse 8. And so this, this entire section, just as we called last week the qualification of elders, our bishops, this morning, verses 8 through 13, we're seeing the qualifications for deacons. The qualifications for deacons. This, again, is different from elder. But we are about to notice that many of the qualifications are very similar. And this should not surprise us that they are similar in many ways because the ultimate model to be represented or followed after in church leadership is Christ. And so there's much overlap here. So we should understand that all the qualifications of both officers of elders and deacons are to be grounded Christ likeness. You remember, we saw two words that seem to uh, overarch the qualifications in both lists. In verse 2 of chapter 3, concerning the elders, it says, A bishop or overseer then must be blameless. It's that word blameless. And it's found again in verse 10 concerning the deacons. Verse 10 But let these also first be tested and let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. And so there it is again. So with this in mind, let us look at the passage. And from this passage, we will see nine qualifications for deacons. Nine qualifications. Not as many as last week, but there are nine. So uh, let's begin to move through these. Beginning in verse 8. Verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be Reverent. The first qualification for a deacon found in the scripture is that he must be reverent. He must be reverent. Um, he opens with the word likewise. It, that is, again, like there are qualifications for the elders, there are now qualifications for deacons. And he uses the word deacon, diakonos. Uh, It is used in the masculine in our passage. Uh, It carries the idea of a servant, a table waiter, an attendant. What's interesting is that this word, its root, comes from the idea of meaning to stir up dust, to stir up dust. So it's probably the background is a person who stirs up a lot of dust by his activity. And so it refers to a person who serves. And so these men, whose basic name means servant or table waiter, and let me say this, this term that's used here for deacon, it can mean also in the Bible in other places just to the saints in general as they serve Christ as servants. But you have to look at the context like here, and at certain places it's speaking of the office or the officer of deacon. But the first qualification that we find here is that he must be reverent or dignified, as some of your Bibles might say. And The word carries the idea that he is to be he's to be a man that is worthy of honor. He's to be a man of dignity, a dignified man. Now, in the King King James Version, he uses um, Tracy's favorite word, grave. He's to be grave. Uh, often, Tracy will walk into the fellowship hall and look over at me and he'll see everyone happy and eating and laughing. And he said, these people are not being very grave. It's supposed to be a joke. He's, he's joking when he says that. But the idea is reverent or dignified. William Henderson, commenting on this word, says this refers not only to their necessary decorum or propriety of manner and conduct, but also to the fact that in their inner thoughts, attitudes, they must be men of spirit wrought gravity and respectability, quote. So the thought is he must be reverent or dignified. Uh, This would fall in accordance with Acts chapter 6, which appears to be the first setting aside of deacons to help the apostles, again, so they could focus on the instruction of the word of God, shepherding and prayer. And in Acts chapter 6, we find that men are set apart. It says in uh, verse 2 of Acts 6, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Verse 3, Therefore... Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so they are to be reverent men, dignified men, serious minded men. Secondly, we find that the deacons must be reverent, and then he says in verse 8, not double tongued. Not double tongued. A deacon must not be double tongued. That is, he doesn't say the same thing twice with the intent to communicate a different message. In other words, hypocrisy. He's he's not out to deceive or to be deceitful. He's a man whose words are to be reliable. His words are to be reliable. In the words of our Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, But let your words be yes, or yes, and let your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So he's to be a man who's reverent and a man who has integrity in the sense that he is not hypocritical in his speech and he is not he's not speaking in one way to one crowd and to another way to another individual or crowd. His his speech is reliable. His words are trustworthy. Number 3, verse 8. Not only are they not to be double-tongued, but notice this. Not given to much wine. He must not be given to much wine. The third qualification. Now, he's, the point here is, is not that he doesn't, he's, it's not that he's a should be a teetotaler. It's that he's not addicted to wine. He's sober. He's temperate. You remember we talked about this in relating to the elders. They are to be men who do not sit with a glass of wine or alcohol for long periods of time. They do not hang around the wine barrel. Uh, So the, the deacon here is to be such a man. This has to do with his sobriety, not given to wine. Again, wine like today was a common drink in the ancient world. Uh, It was used in the Jewish Passover celebration. It was used in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But the deacon is not to be a man that's given over to alcohol or other things that may cause him to be addicted to them and that may hinder his attitude of reverence and his clear thinking. We also find in the Bible that wine is used for medicinal purposes. 1 uh, Timothy 5.23, just move over to chapter 5 in this book. In verse 23, Paul gives instructions to Timothy, no longer drink, uh, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. But the main point, again, is that the deacon is to be a man that does not allow himself to become uh, under control of alcohol. He is to be a man that is not full of wine, but full of the Holy Spirit, as Paul would say in Ephesians 5.18. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number four, the fourth qualification. He must not be greedy for money. Number four, he must not be greedy for money. You see this at the end of verse eight, not greedy for money. In the early church, deacons would routinely collect money they would distribute resources to those in need uh, We years ago we as we were looking at our service and we thought, "Do we pass offering plates?" Um, and we were looking at the length of our service. And so we, we begin to look at different ways that churches throughout the long history of church history has, have collected uh, uh, givings and offerings. And we saw that, yes, churches would pass plates. Churches would have an offering box. We found that that early particular Baptists in England, the deacons would stand at the door at the end of service, and they would take their hats and hold their hats out, and the congregation would put money in the hats as, the, as the everyone would leave church. That kind of put pressure on people, wouldn't it? You know, you're walking through the line, and I guess they're expecting something to go into the hat. We, we have been using an offering box that's at the back of the church. But the minister, the, the deacons would minister to widows and orphans and the poor in the early church. And because of that, It was required that he must be a man that was free from the love of money, that he wouldn't be tempted because he's greedy for money to take that money. In other words, he would not be a Judas. You remember how Judas was like this? In John chapter 12, verse 6, John 12, verse 6, it says, Then he, that is Judas said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So he's doing a man that is not greedy for money. Number five, number five, he must hold to the mystery of the faith. He must hold to the mystery of the faith. Verse nine, Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. There's another qualification. Paul uses this expression, holding to the mystery of the faith. Uh, This is used in the Bible to speak of the truths that were not understood by the Old Testament saints. They were only understood in the way of Shadows, types, figures, prophetic words, but now they've come to be understood. The reality has come. There, are, these things are made clear now by the Spirit of God in the coming of Christ to the New Covenant saints. Listen to this language here, Romans chapter sixteen. Romans sixteen beginning in verse 25. In fact, it's 25 all the way to verse 27. Romans 16. Now to him who's able to establish you according to to my gospel, and notice his language here, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, of the mystery kept secret since the world began, verse 26, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience of the faith, to God alone, alone wise, to be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. You see, the mystery of the faith is essentially the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and the New Testament implications of this gospel. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, the gospel going forth to the nations, and even the engrafting of the Gentiles into the life of the church. A deacon, then according to this, a deacon must hold to the truths of the faith with a pure or clear conscience. They are to have a firm grip of the truth in their mind, and the implications of this truth are to be seen in their lives. As we will move, Lord willing, next week into verses 14 through 16, this mystery, this mystery of the faith Notice verse 16, the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. You can see how he brings this back around. So he's to have a firm grasp of this truth. Essentially, the person in the work of Christ, the gospel. But number six, number six, he must be blameless. He must be blameless. Verse 10, but let these also first be tested and let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So the sixth qualification is that he must be found blameless. Blameless. These men, according to verse 10, must must first be tested or proved to serve as deacons. Let these also first be tested or proved. Which suggests there should be a period of time, adequate time is needed to observe these men in the life of the church. These men have walked with the people of God, and they have proven themselves to be above reproach. So again, we do not quickly lay hands on anyone, whether an elder or a deacon. John Calvin, commenting on this truth, writes this, quote, let those first be tried, tried or tested, He, Paul, wishes that they are to be chosen, those that are chosen, should not be unknown, but that their integrity should be ascertained like that of the bishops. And hence it is evident that they are called blameless, who are not stained by any marked vice. And then he says this, Besides, this trial is not for a single hour, but consists in long experience. In a word, he says, when deacons are to be ordained, the choice must not fall at random and without selection on any that come to hand. But those men are to be chosen who are approved by their past life in such a manner that after what may be called full inquiry, they are ascertained to be well qualified, End quote. So the qualifications... In other words, the the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 are to be demonstrated in this man, evidenced in their lives. It's not a flash in a pan. It's not something that just happens in a temporal sense that was observed one week, one day, one month, but is observed in an ongoing way. It is their life. They are to be those who are found blameless. Again, this relates to verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith, and then notice the language, with a pure conscience. A man is to demonstrate that the faith, the gospel, the truth of Christ, informs his ethics, the way that he lives. His doctrine has life. It has legs. It's revealed by the life that he lives. Now, As I've said recently concerning the office of elder bishop, there is a public nature to the office of deacon. He is a visible representative of the church. He must be blameless in the sense that there is no cause to think badly of him or to cause shame on Christ's church. This does not mean that he's sinless. Again, as I said last week, if any of these true groups of men are to be sinless, then no man would ever be qualified. But The man is to live, though, in such a way that he gives no cause for others to think badly of the church or the Christian faith. He is to be above scandalous reproach. Again, he is to be a man that is blameless, a man of integrity, a man who lives faithfully according to God's word. Number 7, verse 11. Number 7, verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, the wife of a deacon must be faithful. She must be reverent, not a slanderer or malicious malicious gossip. She is to be faithful in all things. Now, there is some debate about this verse. Some are wondering, does this teach the office of deaconess? Because now it is shifted to the female. And there are good men. Let me be plain. There are some good men that I highly respect that differ with me on this position. However, I will, I'm taking the position that the translators of the version of the Bible we use, some of you use the ESV, you see they translate it wives, and there's a reason why I do that. One, it would seem that if women were needed to be deacons or deaconesses, that Acts chapter 6 would have been the perfect time, when they were ministering to widows, that women would have been chosen to do that. And yet we find that they are all men. In fact, in your Bibles, you will find, again, male headship and leadership in the life of the church, according to the head of the church, and, if, and from the beginning, the created order. The prophets are men, the, the, the priesthood of Aaron are all men, uh, the apostles are men, the elders chosen are men, and it's because of male headship and of the created order. Secondly, it is used in the masculine beginning this section, and then he wedges this in, and then he goes right back to the male deacons again. So it seems to be applying to their wives rather than a distinct office. But Calvin says this, and so if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, I stood with Calvin, okay? Okay. <laughs> Calvin said, quote, he means the wives both of the deacons and bishops for they must be aides to their husbands in their office which cannot be unless their behavior excel that of others. Now again it may, may very well be that the nature of the office of deacon is that which would not be in common for his wife to accompany him in the work. He ministers to widows, to orphans, the poor. In such a setting, it would be wise for the wife to accompany him, especially in light that he is to be blameless. He should not be entering a widow's home by himself. Therefore, the wife of a deacon is to be aware of those who he is ministering to. And she is not to gossip about it. She is to be serious minded about it and to be faithful in all things. Again, concerning the controversy that sometimes is around this verse, and Table Talk magazine said this, quote, opponents of deaconesses explained that there are many reasons why Paul would give qualifications for deacons, wives and not those of elders. Deacons who deal in ministries of mercy can have close contact with people on occasions when a woman's assistance might be needed. It would be scandalous for a male deacon to aid sick women in many instances. But their wives, listen, their wives can help bathe, dress, and care for women in need. Those who disagree that Paul allows for female deacons do not put much stock in the fact. And then he begins to mention Phoebe, because this word is attached to Phoebe. However, again, the word can be used in the Bible broadly for just servants, a servant the, our sister Phoebe as she faithfully served the church doesn't mean that it's an ordained office so there's our remarks on that a covenant we hold to male elders and deacons and with this we believe there are dangers especially in our current cultural setting based on when, if we were to deviate from this, even though, again, I want to say there are good men who disagree uh, on this issue. But let me move on. Oh, and if there's any women out here who desire work to do, we can find work for you to do, and we don't have to give you the title, Deaconess. Right, Carol? We can give them work to do. Amen. Amen. And if you want a title, we could probably come up with one. Couldn't you, Carol? Absolutely. All right, Carol will come up with the title for you. All right, number eight, number eight, verse 12. He must be a dedicated husband. Now, here is one of the reasons why I believe these are wives, because he moves right back down to the male deacons. So it seems that this is inserted as part of the qualification because of the kind of work that he does. So in verse 12, let deacons be the husband of one wife. So, so a pastor, an elder, a, a overseer is the husband of one wife, and a deacon is to be a husband of one wife. I, I don't see how an elder or a deacon who's a female can be a husband of one wife. Of course, it is 2021. But the deacon, if married, the point here in verse 12, the deacon, if married, is to be a faithful husband is the point. The husband of one wife. This is the the, the qualification found with elders and also found for instance like in Titus 1 6 which literally reads one a one woman man again the basic is that the deacon like the elder must be faithful to his wife he has not and is not a man of wondering eyes or an adulterous relationship he is committed to his marriage and his marriage vows he is to express as a deacon like the elder that his marriage is to reflect the love and the dedication of Christ to his church as it says in Ephesians five twenty five, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her and so one of the qualifications is if a deacon is married he is to be a faithful husband a faithful husband number nine see we're going to make it number nine he must rule his household well he must rule his household well another point in relating to male headship let a deacon be the husband of one wife ruling their children and their own houses well As we mentioned concerning the elder, the home again and again, and the Bible proves is the proving ground for service, service. The deacon must have submissive children, not perfect children, but well-disciplined children. There must be a reverence in the household to the father and to the mother. They should respect and submit to the parents. There should be a clear example of household leadership. And it's not brute force. It is clear, authoritative leadership mingled with love. Lastly, lastly, we find in verse 13, these closing remarks. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing, and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, in conclusion, there is a great reward for those who faithfully serve. The example they set before the church and their standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 25, 21 says, His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. And that is the desire of every child of God, but in this case that every deacon should aspire that they would hear the Lord on that day say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Again, speaking of leadership, Jesus would say in Luke twenty two twenty four. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them the kings of the gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors and then he says but not so among you on the contrary he who is greatest among you let him be as the younger and he who governs as he serves for he or who is greater he who sits at the table or he who serves it is not he who sits at the table And then Jesus said, yet I am among you as the one who serves. So with this being said, in closing, in a way of application, as we look now the last three weeks at the qualifications and the function of these men of elders and deacons, as our own local church has grown this last year numerically, let us be prayerful that prayerful that there is growth in truth, growth in grace, and Christlikeness in all our people. As we increase numerically, there will be growing needs for additional deacons eventually. So pray that God would grow and raise up men with servants' hearts. Let us remember that and remember this passage along the way. Let us be sure not to ask a man to be a deacon just because he's a nice guy. We desire gifts from Christ. God called men, God gifted men, God transformed men, men that are qualified according to the teaching of scripture. Secondly, let us give thanks to our Lord Jesus, the head of the church. For his kindness in giving gifts to his church. He gives Holy Spirit gifted men to serve in the life of the church. And if you desire to serve, maybe as a deacon, then begin to inquire, begin to ask yourself, do you meet the qualifications of deacon? And if so, one way to begin to ask is to talk to our current deacons, talk to our elders, and ask of ways that you can serve that you can help, you can serve the people of God in the church. That's a good way to begin. Ask yourself about the qualifications and begin to serve. As one of our elders likes to say, you know how we often will know who are deacons before they're set apart? They act like deacons. They have a servant's heart. They begin to serve, and the church body sees them, notices them, because there's a long period of time where they have been proven to be men with that kind of heart. As we've been reminded through this series of messages, all of church leadership is character. The qualifications, the men, elders, and deacons are to be men that are marked with Christ-like character and virtue. That is the goal, Christ. It is the Lord Jesus who set the example of not only of who we are to be as we serve God's people, but he became the one who redeemed us and gave us life as the great servant of God. We think of him as the suffering servant from Isaiah we think of him in the words of Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. While there are imperatives, while there are commands for all Christians here to obey, I mean, realize that the marks and qualifications for elders and deacons found in our passage are ultimately In some sense, maybe not teaching, but there are qualifications that are here that all Christians are to reach after and to call for and to strive for. That we are to have Christ-like character in all of us. And so these are commands, examples, imperatives. But the other good news is, is we do not always live up to these things, do we? We often will fall short to them. We described it earlier is that when we do not live up to the imperatives of God, the commands of God, we, it's called a sin. It's called disobedience. But the good news is, is that we have the promise and the surety of the word of God and the promise, the promise, the indicatives of God. He did not only come to serve, but he came to give his life a ransom for many. He shed his blood for our sins. You remember what Paul said in the first chapter of this book, in verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save people like me and like you, where our sins could be washed He would pay the penalty that was due unto us, judgment, condemnation, death. And by not only his death on the cross, but by that death, he shed his blood and atonement was made where our sins are carried away, washed, and we are forgiven in the Son if this morning, if, if you would flee to Christ by faith, trusting and resting in Jesus Christ by faith, and faith alone is a gift from God, a gracious gift from God alone, there is the hope and the promise of eternal life. So turn from your sins. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from your rebellion to God and turn to Christ by faith and receiving this hope of eternal life and his work on the cross for sinners like you and like me. He is the one, the son of God, who not only died for our sins, but who was buried and who's risen from the dead and who's now ascended on high and at the right hand side of the father. Believe in him and be saved. And saints this morning, we come to the table to rejoice to be reminded in sign and symbol of the great work that He has done and accomplished for us. We will eat of the bread, His broken body, the life that was given for us. We'll drink of the cup, the wine, the shedding of His blood, the sign of His blood, the sign of the cup of God's wrath that He drank in our place. And so as we eat and as we drink this morning, let us eat and let us drink with thanksgiving. Receiving the promises that are found here in this table of Christ's death for sinners like us and where our sins are remembered no more. Let us pray.